early in the 20th century, theological liberalism, theological liberalism driven by evolutionary and naturalistic presuppositions was making tremendous inroads into the Christian church. Denominations were falling to its deadly effect. The faith of the people of God was being crushed, its life being sucked out, oftentimes from the pulpit, by men who would stand here and ridicule the Scriptures, historic Christianity. Against this kind of onslaught of unbelief, there were many who stood firm, both men and women, some making incredible sacrifice in order to stand in the breach. And they were aided in their firm stance, in part, by a series of 12 short books published in the year 1909. A series of books that... 300,000 volumes of this 12-volume work, so 300,000 full sets, that were sent free of charge to pastors, to Christian missionaries, to Sunday school superintendents, to those that were involved actively and aggressively in defending the Christian faith throughout the English-speaking world. You can still buy these books, they've been republished in various forms, single volume, four volume. You perhaps can even get the 12. I'm not sure about that. They're called the fundamentals, the fundamentals. The issues that these short books addressed were important. Things like the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the atonement Salvation by grace, the incarnation, the inerrancy of the Scriptures. These are all the doctrines that were being openly mocked and ridiculed in the pulpits across this land. Under the heading of the chapter devoted, or the section rather, devoted to the inerrancy of the Bible, there was a particular chapter on the historicity of the book of Daniel. That is, that the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel wrote, at the time he said he wrote, well in advance of the things that he prophesied. His prophecies were under attack as what they called pious frauds. That is, they said no man could possibly predict the future with the kind of detail and accuracy that these prophecies hold. They obviously could not have been written hundreds of years in advance of their events. They must have been written after the fact, and the person who wrote them pretended to write them ahead of time. Among the problem chapters in the book of Daniel, and there were many, but there were none that were more problematic to the critics than Daniel chapter 11, the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel. And the reason this chapter is so problematic to those who are steeped in unbelief is because of the intricate detail contained in this chapter. It is really amazing. It is amazing. If you're not there already, open your Bible to Daniel chapter 11. 
page 896 in your pew Bible. Beloved, the truth of the matter is, is, is that no man could have made these prophecies. No man could have made these prophecies. But the God who removes kings and establishes kings could and did and revealed them through his prophet Daniel. The only way a man could know such things is they were revealed to him by the God of glory. This morning, as we look at the 11th chapter of Daniel, we're going to arrive at the fourth of the Old Testament prophecies that we've been looking at now for the last couple of weeks. These four prophecies out of the book of Daniel are critical to our understanding of the Antichrist. And we're doing this to remove confusion that swirls around this wicked and vicious individual. There's a lot of confusion about Antichrist. Daniel's prophecies clear up much of it. Previously, we looked at chapter 7 here in the prophecies. We called it Daniel's prophetic panorama, that is, his overview of world history under the guise of four empires in the form of beasts. We looked in chapter 8 at Daniel's visionary villain, that is, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, Greek ruler of the Syrian portion of the Greek empire that severely harassed and persecuted ancient Israel. And we noted last time when we were looking, or the time before when we were looking at that, that he is the precursor of the Antichrist to come. He, he is the picture of the one to come. Last week we looked at Daniel chapter 9, called it Daniel's penitent prayer, particular verses 24 to 27, where Daniel lays out some specific and important detail to us with regard to the 70th week of Daniel, that final tribulation week and the events of that week. And so now we arrive at chapter 11. I'm calling it Daniel's Received Revelation. The only way Daniel could know the things he writes here is that it was received by God. Now, in order to look at Daniel chapter 11, we have to back up to Daniel chapter 10. That's just the way it is. I didn't write the book. Because Daniel chapter 10 is really the introduction to Daniel chapter 11. It lays the foundation for the events of Daniel chapter 11. The setting for this final vision begins here in chapter 10. So let me just go ahead and read chapter 10 for you. I'll make some comments. And, and by the way, I've included in your, in your bulletin again a good bit of my sermon notes, actually. So you can follow along if you'd like, and you have a permanent record to take home with you for further study. Chapter 10 of Daniel. So just turn back a page or so. Chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the three 
entire three weeks were completed. And on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days. Then, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I have been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. And when he had spoken to me, according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince." And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. What in the world is going on? Well, let's make a few observations here. Notice that it begins, this vision is given to Daniel in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, verse 1, chapter 10. That would be 536 B.C. Two years earlier, the Jewish exiles under the leadership of Zerubbabel had been given permission to return to their homeland, Babylon, from Babylon to Israel to begin rebuilding the temple. That's all laid out for us in Ezra chapter 1. Israel's captivity was over. The 70 years 
had ended. However, rather than enjoying peace and prosperity as one might expect after their captivity had ended, Daniel is given a vision of a, of a horrifying and continual conflict that will consume his people all the way to the end of the days, to the end of time. The intensity of this vision is so great, Daniel is staggered, it says. He's mourning, verse 2, for three weeks. Do you see it? He goes into mourning because of what he's seen. He begins to fast. He can't eat. He can't drink. All he can do is pray. He's overwhelmed by the vision that he has seen. The end of the three weeks, poor Daniel is stunned by a heavenly visit, a heavenly visitor. Verses 11 and 12. This visitor, perhaps the angel Gabriel, and the reason I say that is because in prior visions that Daniel has been given, Gabriel has been the agent of that revelation. So perhaps it is the angel Gabriel who has now appeared to Daniel while he lies there devastated because of the vision of the future of his people that he has received. He doesn't understand it. He wants it explained to him. But all he knows it is that it is terrifying, it is horrifying, it rests heavy upon him. Now, fascinatingly, this angel, I'll call him Gabriel from now on. Gabriel had been sent to give Daniel understanding of the vision from the moment Daniel began to pray. Look at verse 12. He said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, your prayers were heard, and I have come in response to your words, yet it's taken me three weeks to get here. Three weeks. Gabriel had been dispatched to give Daniel the understanding of this horrific vision that he had had, and yet it takes three weeks for the angel Gabriel to bring the answer. And even then, according to verses 13, 14, Gabriel wouldn't have been able to get there except someone had to come and help him. Michael, do you see that? Michael, one of the chief princes. Now, just turn to the right here to chapter 12. Look at verse 1. It says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. This is Michael, the archangel. Michael, the archangel, the guardian angel of Israel. Beloved, what's going on here? Is it Gabriel was to bring the answer to Daniel of the understanding of the explanation of the prophecy, and yet he cannot do it because he's being opposed by a demon. Verse 13, The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me 21 days. For 21 days, the angel Gabriel is locked into some sort of celestial combat with a demon who stands behind the throne of Persia. A combat so strenuous that Gabriel is unable to break himself free until Michael, the archangel, comes to his assistance. Basically, it, look, it looks something like he, a, a touch, a tag in some sort of a wrestling match, I think. And Gabriel is free to go on and carry out his mission. And Michael takes over the combat with this demon. 
Now, judging by your eyes that are staring back at me, you're saying, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) And no, I'm not kidding you. I am not kidding you. There is demonic warfare going on. It is beyond our ability to see, but it is nonetheless real. In fact, when we look over to verse 20, Gabriel says, I shall now have to return to the fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. I've got to go back to the fight with the demon that stands behind the king of Persia. And there's another one coming who stands behind the upcoming Greek empire. What do I make of all this? How do I explain all this? The short answer is very simple. There is an unseen spirit world. An unseen spirit world in which angels and demons are involved in fierce combat. Now, what that combat looks like, I haven't, I haven't an idea. I don't know. I don't know whether it's wrestling. I don't know whether it's fought with, with heavenly swords. I have no idea. All I know is the Bible tells me it's real. It's just as real as any human combat that you or I are familiar with. Evidently, specific angels and specific demons are charged with the task of advancing the cause of world leaders. They stand behind kings. They stand behind empires. They stand behind important men in history. They energize them. They do combat for them. They advance their cause somehow. Now, earlier in this book, chapter 2, verse 21, it says very clearly that God removes kings and God establishes kings, right? We know that world rulers come by the sovereign outworking of the hand of God. And evidently, the means that God uses is this angelic demonic warfare that is going on, invisible to you and me. How do kings come to power? Well, there are visible means that you and I can observe. Is that right? But there's also an invisible, there's an invisible portion that's going on behind the scenes. There are things happening back there, out there, right here. I don't know where it is that I can't see, that you can't see. Yet God occasionally pulls the curtain back just a bit and gives you a glimpse. Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is spiritual warfare going on. There is angel demonic warfare going on. Looking at the end of chapter 10. And into the first verse of chapter 11, we we find an unfortunate chapter break. It clouds the message. That's why I read through the verse 1 of chapter 11. 
Now, you probably remember this, but chapter breaks are not inspired. They are not given by God. They are, they are comprised by, composed by men, and they're for the purpose of making it easier to find our way around the Bible. Most of them are very helpful and very good. This is one that's not so good. The chapter break is in the wrong place. It belongs at the end of verse 1 of chapter 11. That should be the end of chapter 10. Because it, it, it fills out the backstory here, as it were, of the angelic warfare that's going on. Notice it says, in the first year of Darius the Mede, this is the year 539 B.C., I, that is, Gabriel, arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Closest antecedent to the pronoun is Darius the Mede. That's who I understand the hymn to be. What Gabriel is saying is, is that three years before I appear to you here, Daniel, in the third year, at the beginning of chapter 10, three years prior to that, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I rose to help him. I rose to help him. Now, what in the world is that talking about? Well, what it seems to be talking about is that when Darius the Mede came to power at the change of empires from Babylon to Medo-Persia, there was, at that time, as it were, Darius was in the balance and could have gone either way. He could have favored Israel or he could have been Israel's oppressor. So God sent Gabriel to Darius to turn him to the benefit of Israel. I think we see that, by the way, in Daniel chapter 6. I'm not going to turn you there. Just mark it down. Check it out on your own. Do you remember Daniel chapter 6? That's where Darius was tricked into throwing Daniel into the lion's den. Do you remember this? And an angel came, shut the mouth of the lion, and turned Darius's heart to look favorably upon Daniel and the God of Israel. That may very well be the event being referred to here. Beloved, there is demonic activity in the world. There is demonic activity in the world. And this demonic activity lies behind world empires. They don't just happen. There's a war going on. And this demonic activity is concentrated on the extermination of the people of Israel. That's the big point I want you to get from this. Satan is absolutely opposed to Israel, will do all in his power to exterminate her. He has been persecuting her. He has been inciting world leaders to extinguish her from the beginning. Why? Because she is God's chosen people, and from her come Messiah. Demonic activity is revealed to us here, lies behind the Medo-Persian throne. Demonic activity lies behind the Greek throne, verse 20, chapter 10. These empires are demonically inspired and given for the purpose of crushing Israel. Let me illustrate this for you. During the reign of Xerxes I, known in Bible names as Ahasuerus, 
there was a man, uh, one of his ministers by the name of Haman. Do you remember Haman? Haman concocted a plan whereby he convinced Ahasuerus to make a decree, right? Or, or to, yes, basically to make a decree to exterminate the nation of Israel. This is the, this is the story of the book of Esther. We know for sure that during the tribulation period, the Antichrist himself was satanically inspired. Revelation chapter 13 says it. He is determined to wipe out God's chosen people. What do I make of all this? What I make of all this is that at one level, the level that you and I can see, there are human governments rising and falling throughout this world. There are governments that are arising that are diametrically opposed to the nation of Israel and would exterminate her. There's one presently in the Middle East who their leader has said as much. Based on what's been revealed to me here in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, these governments, these world leaders, these antichrists, are demonically inspired. Yet God has his angels. He has his guardian angel. He has his protecting angel. He has Michael. He has Gabriel. That stand in the gap and do battle in the spiritual realm to prevent these things from coming to pass. Now we're ready to look at chapter 11. Chapter 11 sits on this foundation of spiritual warfare. We're not to understand chapter 11 as if these are just happenstance in earth history. Just one government leads to another government and no one can explain why. The answer is very simple. It is the outworking of God's sovereign and divine plan, which in his grandeur sweeps up even demonic activity and brings it for his purposes. So we look at chapter 11, which actually begins in verse 2. Beginning in verse 2, running all the way through verse 35 of chapter 11, is Israel's history under the second and third empires. Not under Babylon. Babylon has already fallen. It has been conquered by Medo-Persia. We've gone over this time and time again. This is her history under the Medo-Persian Empire. This is her history under the Greek Empire. Verse 2, now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. According to this angelic explanation of Daniel's vision. And by the way, the vision that so unnerved Daniel is the contents of chapter 11. The contents of chapter 11. According to the explanation here, there are four more kings to arise over the Persian Empire. History tells us who they were. I've listed them for you in your notes. Cambyses, Pseudo-Smyrtus, Darius I, and Xerxes I. Four more. 
The fourth king, Xerxes I, also known in Bible language as Ahasuerus, he would grow more powerful, it tells us here, than all the prior kings. And when he ascended to such power, he would arouse the whole empire, the end of verse 2, against the realm of Greece. Xerxes I mustered a million-man army and invaded Greece. He was held up for a few days at the Pass of Thermopylae by 300 Spartans. But they soon were able to overwhelm that rearguard action, and his million-man army poured down into Greece. At the same time, he had sent a major naval detachment around to, to engage the Greek navy. As his million-man army moved down the Greek peninsula, they burned the city of Athens and, in particular, the Acropolis, the site of Greece's wisdom and religion. In 480 B.C., at the Battle of Salamis, the Persian navy was destroyed by the Greek navy. And Xerxes abandoned the campaign, retreated back to Persia. That, by the way, is the setting most likely for the book of Esther, all of those events having occurred prior. As a result of the Persian burning of Athens and their Acropolis, when Alexander the Great rose to power, verse 3, a mighty king will arise and rule, rule with great authority and do as he pleases. When Alexander the Great arose, it was with great fury that he repaid upon Persia that which had been inflicted upon Greece. And in a series of lightning battles, and we've talked about this now more than one time, Alexander rapidly moved across the Middle East, capturing all of Turkey, along the Mediterranean coast, all the way down into Egypt, continuing further east until he came through Afghanistan to the Indus River. The empire of Alexander the Great, the mighty king, verse 3. At the height of his power in 323 B.C., verse 4, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be what? Broken up and parceled out towards the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants. His sons were murdered nor according to his authority which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. When Alexander died prematurely, his empire was broken up. After a 22-year internal struggle, the empire was broken into four pieces and assigned out to four generals. Beginning in verse 5 and running through the rest of verse 35, Daniel will now give us an amazing detail, the picture of two of those generals and their lineage. The other two are, one, are not germane to the, to the people of Israel, and so they pass off outside the prophetic scene, but two remain. One in Egypt, one in Syria. Again, on your handout, I've given you a little chart where that's all laid out there for you. Two generals, Seleucus and Ptolemy. Seleucus and Ptolemy. These 
dynasties that descend from these men, one in Syria in the north, one in Egypt in the south, continued to do warfare back and forth through the land of Israel. This back and forth struggle eventually in the year 175 B.C. brings a man by the name of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, to the throne of the Syrian Empire, the king of the north. This is the same man we met in Daniel chapter 8 where he is called the little horn. Verse 21. In his place a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Antiochus Epiphanes will continue to do war here against his rival in Egypt, and the text speaks of that, moving back and forth through the Holy Land. And in the process, he will bring great horror and persecution upon the people of Israel. Let's pick it up in 29. At the appointed time, he, that is Antiochus Epiphanes, will return and come into the south. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. That is, he will be repulsed. For the ships of Ketim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. What's he talking about here? In the year 168 B.C., Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, was attacking Egypt when Rome entered into the picture. Rome was the fourth empire, do you remember? The one that was going to conquer Greece. Rome entered into the picture. This expression, the ships of Katim, speaks. Katim is in the west. It speaks of the empire that comes from the west. Actually, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they just go ahead and translate it as Rome. Basically, what happens is Antiochus, before he's able to conquer Egypt again, Rome enters in and drives him out. Rome tips the balance of power. Rome is ascending onto the world stage. These are the days, by the way, of Cleopatra and all that sort of stuff. Antiochus Epiphanes is so enraged that Rome has driven him out of his, his place where he believes that he should rightfully rule, which is Egypt, that he comes back into Israel. It says he's enraged at the Holy Covenant, verse 30, and he begins to take it out on the Jews. Verse 31, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. I told you about this a week or two ago. This was the setting up of a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple. The abomination that causes desolation. This was the slaughtering of a pig on the altar. This was the maximum defilement of the Jewish holy place. Jesus refers to this event in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. There he refers back to this historic event and he says that that 
another event is going to happen very similar to this, and it will mark the, the beginning of the great tribulation upon the nation of Israel. Jesus looks back to the historic event and says this event pictures a future event of similar type. Flip over to chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Daniel refers to this time as a time of stress, or distress rather, persecution without parallel in the history of the nation of Israel. Jesus, in Matthew 24, 15, refers to the same coming event, and he says it will be a time of distress unlike anything the world has ever known. It's talking about the coming tribulation. The coming tribulation. There can only be one time in earth history that, can, that is unlike any other time. And it's a future time. It's back to chapter 9 and verse 27. And he, that is, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant That is, he will impose a strong covenant with the many, with the nation of Israel, for one week of years, for seven years. But in the middle of those seven years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed and is poured out on the one who makes desolate. At the midpoint of the tribulation, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, Antichrist will break his covenant of peace with the nation of Israel. He will establish the abomination of desolation, which we're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, is that he will set up an image of himself in the temple and demand the world worship him. He will enforce that by inscribing on the population of the earth. They will take to themselves the number 666. Those who refuse will be unable to buy or sell. This is the mark of the midpoint of the tribulation. Beginning next week, we'll begin to unfold the tribulation, and we're going to come back to these passages over and over again and try to fill them out for you. But this historic event, Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, provides the historical anchor for the future prophetic event that comes in its fulfillment. Now, beginning at the end of verse 35... We move forward in time. We move forward in time. This is not unusual for the prophets at all. When the prophets look out into the future, it is not uncommon at all for them to speak of some events that are close at hand and other events that are very far away. But from their point of view, the two events look side by side. What the prophets fail to see is the long period of time 
that God has ordained between some of these events. The same thing happens here in Daniel chapter 11, verse 35. It says, And some of those who have insight will will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Then the king will do as he pleases. And we're introduced to a new king. We're introduced to a new king. One who is the greater Antiochus Epiphanes, if you like. The fulfillment of all the wickedness of this historic character is now fulfilled in this future character to come. We know we've moved forward in time by the context that we were given here in the 12th chapter of Daniel in verse 1, where he speaks there about times of unprecedented tribulation, times of resurrection, times of future rewards. We have moved to the end times. You see it, verse 2, chapter 12, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt, and on. He's speaking about the future day of resurrection. What has happened is, subtly, we have moved from a near-term prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes to a future prophecy yet to be fulfilled of Antichrist, who comes like unto Antiochus, only greater in his wickedness. We move to the time of tribulation. Quickly, verse 36, And the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. And he will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. And he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. And he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out the land for a price. And at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries and overflow them and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land that is Israel, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and foremost of the sons of Ammon. That is modern Jordan, by the way. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. And he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians, that's the Sudan, by the way, will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many, and he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Now at this time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress, and on it goes. What in the world? The angel Gabriel has given us some important information about the coming Antichrist. Seven observations for you here quickly from this text. I can go quickly because I've written them all out for you. Verse 36. And by the way, those that would like to say, well, this is just a continuation of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. None of these events match what we know historically about his reign. 
up to this point, they match perfectly. It's like you're reading the history books, but this point forward, they no longer match. But here they are. This is what we learn about him. Number one, he elevates himself to a place of deity and directly challenges God. Verse 36, he will exalt and magnify himself above every God. He will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. That is the God of Israel. Secondly, he will have success in his wicked endeavors until God's decreed time for his reign comes to an end. Verse 36, until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. That is, until Daniel's 70th week has finished. That is, until the kingdom that was the stone cut without hands that crushes the feet of the statue. Do you remember that in Daniel 10? or Daniel 2, rather, comes, Messiah's kingdom. Jesus says that if, but for the sake of the elect, if it hadn't been cut short, no one would have survived the seven years. Antichrist will rule on this earth in the most horrifying manner, slaughtering the inhabitants of this globe, but only for so long as God will allow. Verse 37, he will be an atheist. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. This man will be an atheist. Beyond that, verse 37, he will show no regard for the desire of women. Now, this is an interesting expression. Some think it means he'll be celibate. Others suggest it means he will have a homosexual orientation. Still others suggest that this expression, the desire of women, is a reference to what every Jewish girl hoped for, which was to be to give birth to Messiah. And by this expression, it's saying that he will be opposed, he will hate Messiah, but that seems a rather roundabout way to make that kind of statement. So I'm inclined to see that it's speaking somewhere or speaking with regard to this man and his relationship with women. That is, he has nothing to do with women. He cares not for them. Fifth, He worships the God of fortresses, verse 38. He will honor the God of fortresses. This man worships military might and power. And he invests heavily in military buildup necessary to accomplish his world conquest. You see it? He will honor the God of fortresses with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasure. This man will begin a military buildup, a buildup necessary for him to conquer Europe. For it is out of Europe, the revived Roman Empire, that this man comes. Verse, or number six. He will use his wealth to arrange alliances, verse 39, to hand out political favors, to give financial payoffs to those who support him. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. He will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out the land for a price. He will begin to make alliances. Here and there, he will, he will give financial support to those that side with him. In the words of Revelation 13 and verse 4, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him? His power will grow to the place where no one can oppose him. In his world conquest, beginning in verse 40, it will center on the Middle East at The end time, verse 40, the king of the south will collide with him. That is, there will be some kind of a war that will involve Egypt. The king of the north will storm against him. 
Now, there's some difference of opinion with regard to what that means. I'm going to come back to it at a later date, but I will just say this to you, that there's, there's some kind of war that happens here in the Middle East that involves, at a minimum, Egypt, Jordan, and Sudan. All you've got to do is read the newspaper, and that's not so hard to imagine, is it? While he's engaged in that conflict, he will hear, verse 44, rumors. He will rumor, hear rumors about a military buildup from the east and from the north. And it will disturb him. And so he will take his armies and he will turn, return back into Israel, pitching his tent, making his headquarters in Jerusalem. Verse 45. The world will be set at that time for what the Bible calls the Battle of Armageddon. When the armies of the world come together at that one place, initially to overthrow Antichrist. But it's at that moment that Christ returns and they turn and unite in opposition to him. It's called the little horn. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. It emphasizes his pride and his aggressiveness. It's called the man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. It emphasizes his personal wickedness. It's called the beast in Revelation 13. It speaks of his his hostility, the wildness of his hostility. He's called Antichrist. 1 John 2.18, it emphasizes his attempt to take the place of Messiah in the world. This man will be the most wicked human being ever to live on this planet. He will be the embodiment of all those who have gone before. Take all of the world's most despicable villains, gather them all up, and you now have this one. This one that the Bible says is inspired, motivated, energized directly by Satan himself. Why is it important To understand Daniel 10 as you approach Daniel 11, it's important to understand it because you must realize that the intensity of this kind of wickedness can only come when it is energized out of the demonic realm. And it would sweep across the earth were God not to hold it in check. Let me leave you with this one thought. As we close down at least this section of things to come. It is entirely possible that this man is alive today. It is entirely possible. The Bible tells us we are in the last days, that's for sure. And we have been in the last days for 2,000 years. Whether the return of Christ is in my lifetime or not, I don't know. The Bible says his return is imminent. It could be at any moment. But if the prophetic clock is counting down, beloved, if we are getting close to the hour, then this most despicable villain is alive somewhere today. Now that could frighten the daylights out of you. And it should frighten the daylights out of you unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your own and personal Savior. If you have by faith given yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in His sacrificial death on your behalf, believing that His death pays the penalty for your sins, thus you don't have to stand before God by yourself, 
Christ stands in your place. And the Bible says that Christ will come and receive you to himself and you will escape this horrible, horrible time. But if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you want to go it on your own, this is what you're looking forward to. This is what you face. I pray you choose wisely. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation of world history that it gives us. Our Father, we had to move quickly. There were many details we moved over. There's so much here, Lord, at times it can make our heads spin. But the overall message is true and clear, and that is that you are in control, and this world is going somewhere. It is not out of control. And that as evil continues to well up in this society and world at large, as we continue to look around and see people tearing at each other, this world ready to burst wide open. Our Father, we gain a sense that perhaps the end is very close at hand. Our Father, we know that this world is not going to end in some nuclear conflagration, but it is going to end according to your divine plan. And at that moment, when the armies of the world are united when Israel is facing its most darkest hour, when her capital has been overrun, when she is momentarily to be exterminated, Christ will return. He will crush all his enemies under his feet. And he will establish his great and glorious kingdom. Thank you, our Father, that we will be there to enjoy that kingdom. Not because of any goodness in us, but because of what Christ has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.